Welcome to Free Your Inner Guru, the show for and about conscious leaders and changemakers. I'm your host, Laura Tucker. Welcome to the first episode of 2021. Before we dive into this great big conversation with Nathaniel Garrett Novosel about the meaning of life, I want to take a moment to wish you and yours a very happy new year. I hope that we all are able to find peace, health, resilience and hope amidst the very obvious challenges that we're navigating as a society and uh, that we're able to bring some lightness to our everyday experience. Before we dive into this conversation, I've got a a few updates for you. And if you're a brand new listener, this will all be news for you. So um, there's, there's been some changes with the podcast if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, or any podcasting app, you may or may not be aware that a few episodes ago, the podcast was moved off of my personal website, lauratucker.com, over to its own site at freerinnerguru.com. And uh, the reason that that happened was it was getting pretty crowded over on my site. And the the meaning and purpose of this podcast has evolved over the course of the last three and a half years. And it's become apparent that it is no longer a means for me to promote my coaching and very much a, a platform for some of my own self-expression, certainly, but also a platform to bring on other experts and have wisdom and experience from many sources and voices. So it just, it wasn't feeling aligned just to be over there on a site that carries my own name. The plus side, um, one of the many plus sides for me personally, is that it's opened up lauratucker.com to be exclusively my own self-expression. And that's been incredibly freeing. And if you are at all interested in receiving a daily letter for you know, I'm writing every day and, and sending it out in the form of a letter to my list over there. Um, my photography is there. Um, there's a number of resources that I made when uh, my main thing was coaching. And uh, and you might enjoy it. So I invite you to, I'll leave a link um, like I do with everything that gets mentioned. And then on the other side of things, on Free Your Inner Guru, I've got some super fun merchandise that it feels like I've just crossed a giant finish line. We started with um, with figuring this out last summer, and I was able to get in touch with um, a wonderful apparel designer who just happens to be one of the owners of my yoga studio. So very uh, one thing led to another. The the words that have been used to describe this graphic that he designed for the first piece in the line of merchandise to support this podcast is that he knocked it out of the park. And it's so fun because I cannot draw. That's why I'm into photography. Kids who I used to teach in high school, they would tell me that every single thing that I used to draw looked like a a burning, um, a burning chicken on a fire. Wouldn't matter what it was. So I know my limitations there. And I received a great big box with the first shipment to our household yesterday or the day before. 
and I'm like a kid in the candy shop. My husband cannot get over it. I, I, I just like jump around vibrating wearing these things because I'm just so happy with how they turned out. The quality is wonderful. The, the, the hoodies um, have, are stitched and not just printed on or transferred on. Um, I just can't say enough about them. It was a, it was a team effort and, uh, and I'm so pleased to have something so fun, meaningful and attractive to represent this show. So I, there, I just did a huge commercial for them. Oh, but anyhow, that's how excited I am. It's ridiculous. So I will be posting my unboxing video across social media and uh, and some photos, but you can go right over if you want to check them out, see what I'm on and on about. You can go over to freeyourinaguru.com. They're in the shop. That's very obvious once you get there. And it's a nice lean site. I'm planning over the course of the year to invite other people to contribute um, content and articles. And I will continue to the absolute best of my ability and the number of seconds in my day to curate this content so that it is conscious, so that it is well-rounded, that it is ethical. And uh, the more this, this interview that I'm about to stop talking and let you listen to is, has really clarified for me um, so much around ethics. And, you know, Nathaniel in his book, The Meaning of Life, he's identified from his 20 plus years as a professional researcher and advisor to um, he he's studied individual and group behavior. I'll just give you some of his bio right now. So you get the type of people that I am interested in speaking to. He's, he's researched psychology, evolutionary biology, organizational best practices, le- leadership decision makings, business, technology, finance, and philosophy. And his main impetus, his purpose is to understand how the world as we know it works and why. And so within that, um, he has identified a, a framework with eight areas. And one of those areas is ethics. Now, I don't know about you, but... I think about ethics all the time, but I, I would have never labeled it that way. And particularly the more I've become sort of politically engaged and aware, I, that's when ethics, um, well, and, and as Nathaniel will say, I think he said politics is where ethics meets reality or something like that. You'll listen for it. You'll, you'll hear it or ethics put into practice. Anyways, so the ethic of this podcast, or one of them, is that I read every book from every author cover to cover, because you never know what's going to show up in a book, right? And that I do thorough research and curate what I consider to be conscious. And then, and then I ask myself on a regular basis, who do I think I am to be the arbiter of that? You know, and on one hand, it's my podcast, I get to. But on the other hand, my life's experience from teacher to corporate trainer to sales to um, business owner and entrepreneur consultant coach and and my the experience I had in the self-help industry really opened a Pandora's box and so now I am very very dedicated to doing the best that I can to curate content that is about you first not about me not about them the people standing to benefit financially, but that it's coming from a place of promoting growth and consciousness 
and um, truly a better world. Not the better world that we get sold a lot of times, but a truly a, a more human and love-based existence versus fear and ego and just don't even get me started talking about narcissistic leadership. It does come up in this um in this episode anyway. So I'd just be stealing our thunder. So with no further ado, this has now been eight minutes. I invite you over to lauratucker.com to uh, check out the photography, the the daily letters that I'm putting out. Writing is my big push this year. And uh and then over on freeyourinnerguru.com, you'll see the merchandise, the, the community that is growing there. There'll be more on that in upcoming episodes as I'm just finally setting, settling on a business model for that, that I find to be ethical. So um, I hope you always, when you think of me, think she walks her talk. And, uh, and so I'll just roll this out as it unfolds and as it feels ready. So uh, so on that note, it is my absolute pleasure to introduce you to a very genuine, engaged, and, um, and super knowledgeable person um, who's written this big book that is going to stay on my shelf for when I need to be able to discern between belief, value, ethics, and some of the reasons why we are here. Enjoy. Our guest this week is Nathaniel Garrett Novosel. Welcome to Free Your Inner Guru, Nathaniel. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to get into what you do and what compelled you to write a book with the um, very sweeping title, The Meaning of Life. And, uh, and as a, you're a professional researcher, which makes this, I think a bit of a different book just from, from the outset. So what mm-hmm. would compel you to, to put this, this work together? Yeah, well, that's a really big question and long story behind it. Um, let me try to summarize, but there's a lot. Um, so it all began, um, my, my father disappeared in the middle of the night when I was five. Um, so I, I don't really remember how I felt about that. Um, cause I was too young for my memories to really be very good. But, um, I do remember, uh, he, about six months later, he wanted us to go out and see him. He, he moved to California. I'm from Pittsburgh. And, um, I went out there when I was six for three weeks and two days. And then when I came home to, to Pittsburgh, uh, I felt an emptiness a worthlessness of pain. I wouldn't wish on anybody. And that was the first time I'm six years old. The first time I asked myself, what is the point of all this? Like if we just you know, sit here and suffer like this is terrible. If I'm going to feel per- uh, terrible like this. What's the point of it all? What's the meaning of life? Now um, I'm a little bit Aspergery, like I'm on the high end of the spectrum. So there's a, I jokingly call my robot brain. So as soon as I ask that question, there's a part of the back of my head, my robot brain is saying, that's an interesting question. I bet you there's an answer to that. <laughs> And without any like emotion whatsoever, and I'm crying my eyes out and I feel miserable and my, my, my intellectual side is like fascinated by that question. So a combination of, you know, my father leaving and having this Asperger's, I didn't even know I had until a little bit ago, but uh, I, I always trying to understand human behavior and how things work, how the world works, because I wanted to, you know, do well in it and things like that. So I studied psychology, evolution, uh, philosophy, religion, like everything under the sun, business, economics, 
Uh, and I, I did that for like 20 some years. And uh, I work now as a, a researcher and advisor uh, for uh, leading executives at uh, world-class organizations. And I advise them on, on how to you know, manage their teams. So uh, it was just kind of blind luck that I ended up becoming a researcher, though, I'll be honest with you, <laughs> out of college. Uh, but it was just such a sweet spot for me because I love to learn. I love to teach. And that's what I do for a living. Um, so you take all of that, <laughs> my personal time and spending doing all that research, my professional time, I'm researching and advising for leading executives. And then, uh, it's, I don't know how I was, I don't know, 30 or something, 29, something like that. Uh, and I just asked myself, if I were to impart all this knowledge onto someone else, what would I say? And boom, when I asked that question, my mind just started flooding with all these ideas of like, well, technically there are these, you know, I, I think at the time I started was like, well, there are these set of concepts, like you have to understand like desire and belief and, and growth. And I kind of had these ideas in my head that eventually shaped into eight concepts that underline all uh, of uh, life and organisms, uh, all humans to, to single celled organisms have the, use these eight concepts to find, you know, meaning in their existence for humans. Uh, they, they all use it to actually live, grow and, and thrive as organisms for the single cell. They're not sitting there thinking about meaning. <laughs> um, and so when that happened, I was like, I got to write about this. Like I, I got to write the book that I want to write. And I had all these rules for it. Like um, I couldn't tell anyone what to do or what to think or what to believe or what ethics to have. Cause that's what a lot of books do. They said, well, you got to follow these rules. Cause I said so, cause it's the best way it worked for me, you know, whatever. I don't believe in that. So I was like, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I can't tell anyone what goal to have. So I was like, okay, you know, you, you, you know, get rich or do this or do that. I'm like, look, I don't know. I'm not qualified to tell you that. But I am qualified to tell you the process through which you go to identify goals, to identify your ethics, to find them, and then to uh, systematically uh, create a life that is meaningful to you. And that was the book I ended up writing. So, so much here. Um, I had a note because I had a way that I wanted to start this conversation with a story and you told a story that rhymes with it so incredibly well. And it was the story of, um, this would have been in around this time of year, we're recording in December. Um, I just put up my Christmas tree with my then six or seven-year-old niece, Jenna. And six weeks before that, our family had suffered a tremendous loss. My youngest cousin, who was 22, died in a car accident. And every year it was my my tradition, my, you know, ritual to take Jenna and go get a Christmas tree. Uh, and we would go back to my apartment in Toronto and, and set it up together and have hot chocolate. And that particular year I had her at my dining room table and she was sitting, um, sitting just kind of diagonal to me. We're doing something at the table and she, she looks up at me and she's understand she's got like these crystal blue eyes, like, like the color of your book actually. And she looks right at me and she says, um, Laura, I've, I have a question. I've been thinking about it and I want to ask you. And I'm thinking she's going to ask, you know, what can we have for dinner? Mm. And, and she looks at me, she goes, I'm trying to understand what's the meaning of life. And I was like, floored, floored that someone that young could be thinking on those terms. And the context was this loss she was trying to figure out and how she felt about it. And I remember enough about my response to know that she um, was patient with me. <laughs> and I fumbled together some kind of, you know, well, Jenna, I think 
you know, that it's different for everyone. But at the end of the day, the meaning of life is to be good to each other and to be kind and to take care. And now having just finished your book, because as you know, one of my ethics is that I have to read the entire book before I bring a guest on, um, is to read the whole thing. And I think I launched into a combination of um, ethics and values in fumbling yeah. around to find the words, because obviously I can hardly answer the question for myself, let alone a seven-year-old when I was in, you know, that would have been in my late thirties at the time. Mm -hmm. And support. You mentioned uh, helping other people and, and things uh, like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're, I, I think the book is a great, um, we'll use it as the jumping off point here, but um, for the reader so that when I picked up the, first of all, when I got it, I have to say, I was, um, I was, I looked and I was like, well, that's ambitious, right? The meaning of life and the cover mm -hmm. has clouds on it. It's got the title. It's very simple. And then what's in between the two covers is almost um, in many ways, the op it's very well written and, and clear, but what's between the covers is not simple at all. It's, There's no fluff. There's no fluff. <laughs> yeah. And I think that points to, when you really get into it, like the, the, the researcher lens where it's not, you're not just citing the things that we see and cited all the time in every single quote unquote self-help book, mm -hmm. you're digging deep into the research and, and putting forward this argument for lack of a better word for each of these concepts. Mm -hmm. And, and so you've, you've, I've got a, a list of the chapters right in front of me to use as a structure here. So it, it moves from growth to your experience, to your desire, to belief, then into emotions, ethics, support, and choice. Now, can we jump into say the difference between a belief and a value or how that fits into the meaning of life? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so a belief is anything that you assume to be true. That's the definition of a belief. Now there's a subset of beliefs, which is knowledge, which is what you actually can prove <laughs> is true. Um, now what's kind of funny about beliefs is that technically, technically, uh, anything that you're not observing at the current present moment is a belief and not knowledge technically, because like, for example, like you could say, I know the sun is going to come up tomorrow. Well, technically, if you're not looking at the sun and you're looking at the earth, you don't know whether it's there. <laughs> uh, you could safely assume that. And that's, you know, it's good. It's a good, strong, you know, valid belief, obviously. Uh, but technically, um, unless you're observing it, you don't know. Um, so that's, that's what a belief is. And so beliefs are important in your life because uh, you have to assume uh, things uh, about the world that are beneficial to you, to your growth, right? So if you believe that your life sucks and that, you, you know, life sucks and then you die or something, then you are going to behave in ways that reflect those beliefs, which will end up creating a self-fulfilling prophecy, which is a very common psychological uh, uh, term, which just basically means you're going to create the sucky life that you expect. And if you believe that your life is going to be better, you're going to work hard and you're going to see that success. So that's the importance of beliefs. So uh, a value is anything that you place, you know, significance or importance on. Uh, I know that's kind of a, a really broad uh, way of defining it, but basically I, you value your own life, right? You don't, you know, no one wants to, to die. So it's like, okay, so I value my life. So I, I, because I value it, I follow rules 
which uh, ethics are rules that involve other people. Um, uh, but you follow rules to basically protect your life uh, and help thrive, you know, help grow that, that, that life. Uh, and so those, those, those things that you value are anything that has any kind of significance or importance to your, uh, to your life. So it could be friends or family. It can be, you can value material things. That's, I, I, I don't have any judgment on that. That if you love your iPhone, that's great. You know, I'm not going to you know, criticize that. Um, there are all kinds of things that you can value, but whatever you value, those are the core things for ethics. Now, ethics are a subset of beliefs because the rules you follow are the ones you believe you have, right? So if, if I believe, if I hold value, um, I'm trying to see if I can find something. Here's a, here's a little sculpture from when I was uh, like in kindergarten or something, I don't know, first grade or something. So like if I, ha I have value, I've had this for like 30 some years. <laughs> so I, I obviously value it, right? Otherwise I would just drop it on the floor and break it right now, right? So uh, I have a rule that, you know, I, I handle it delicately, right? I'm not just like, uh, you know, throwing it around or whatever. So the rules I follow with how I handle this because I value it are different than for something I don't value. Like, I don't know if I had a piece of paper or something around here. If I just draw, oh, if I drop my napkin, oh, whatever, I don't care. It's not as much strong of an ethic. So you're setting these rules. Now, ethics specifically are around interactions with other people or involving other people. They don't have to be with other people. So like, you know, polluting water, for example, you're not interacting with another person, but it affects them. So uh, you're setting a rule that I'm going to behave in a certain way so that while I'm seeking my own growth, I'm not hurting anyone else in the process. So if I like make money through, you know, mutually beneficial transactions, that's a good thing. If I lie to someone and take their money and con them, that's unethical because they're not benefiting from the transaction. So that's an example of how, how ethics work. And so you have those values, your ethics come from your values and your ethics are a subset of beliefs, which are anything you assume to be true. The ethics being is what you assume to be true about what's the right way to behave so that you maximize your own growth and minimize harm to other people. So in a sense, I, I've done a lot of values work and have noted that they have changed over time. They they're not static and sometimes they might have been values that, you know, I've, I highly valued something that I lacked in my life, like, you know, maybe a relationship or um, money or, you know, like those were things they were associated with, with goals. And then the older I've got, the more they've become um, like one, one of my highest values is the value for growth right? The value for personal growth. So these things can sort of operate almost interchangeably. Exactly. And, and, and I, I know, you know, some people will criticize as well, you know, meaning of life is not growth for, and then they list a bunch of reasons why, like uh, people don't have the same growth potential or things like that. Right. Um, and I said, well, look, these are the eight, you need all eight to have a meaningful life. So there's a difference between feeling like your life is meaningful in which you need all eight and what the point is. And the point is, the point is growth. It's objectively growth. I mean, it's scientifically provable, you know, uh, heck Darwin did, you know, survival of the fittest, right? Now science usually focuses on the disproving negatives, right? Right. Rather than proving positives. And, you know, they're saying, well, the point is survival. It's okay. But, but you have to ask yourself, well, why do you survive? You survive to thrive, to grow. So like, yeah, yeah uh, Darwin only went so far as to say, well, people who didn't die lived. <laughs> and I'm going just the one little philosophical step further, which is, well, why do you live? You live to grow. So that's, that, that's the point, but you do need all eight, right? You can't just grow willy nilly and like hurt people while you're growing. Cause then that's, it's going to hurt your sense of meaning. My favorite example for that is if you cheat to win a, a championship. So we all know the steroid era and the doping and all this other stuff in sports. Uh, you hold these people to the highest esteem uh, when you think that they're doing it legitimately and they're just having to grade their fields. As soon as you find out that they cheat, 
boom, the meaning, the significance, the importance of those achievements wiped out. Uh, some people, another reason people still hold them to a high esteem is go, well, yeah, but it's still hard to do. So, you know, and that wasn't yeah. that bad. Everybody was doing it. So you're rationalizing it to make it not seem as unethical because the only reason why you can give it significance is if it was done ethically. I think also, and there's a particular story playing out in my mind when you were saying that, and, and he's raised a lot of money for cancer research, or like they start pulling in other, um, you know, contributions to um, rationalize or va- validate what happened. Exactly. And so, I mean, I'm not saying anything's right or wrong. I, I don't have an opinion on it. I'm just explaining mm-hmm. how it works. That's how it works is, is that the significance comes in with regards to the growing to be someone who can hit, you know, 700 home runs or whatever. Uh, And then the ethics, did you do it fairly or did you have some sort of unfair advantage in which case, Ooh, that's going to decrease the meaning or significance of that achievement of that growth uh, because you didn't do it on the same uh, playing field as everybody else who you were competing with. You, um, when you're talking about, um, the experience section, you address the uh, idea or the condition of, of flow. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm actually, I'm going to be daring and try to pronounce this author's name yeah. properly. I've watched videos. The book is called flow and it's Mihai Chizank Mihai. And, oh, wow. Uh, that was a lot better than I could do. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I've, uh, I've, sp- I've had to speak about this, this, this bo- amazing book, which I'll leave in the show notes, the link along with obviously the meaning of life. The book is about flow and, and the conditions of growth. And I was so, I was really excited to see that as one of the, the references that you cite. Um, what, what is it about flow and either the pursuit of flow or the experience of flow that, that is so powerful in, in our growth experience? Oh, flow is an amazing idea because let, let me give you some context on, on my, or the, the listeners, some context on my book. Uh, so basically what I'm saying is that the point of life is to grow. You grow through experience. So that, those are the first two concepts. Uh, you're guided to where to grow based on your desires, what you want to do and your beliefs uh, sustain your drive toward your goals, uh, to your growth goals uh, when adversity hits. Um, and then there's this cool concept in the emotions chapter, which is number five, that basically says that emotions, that it's a formula for, for figuring out why you feel a certain way, no matter what it's the most, it's one of my most, it's like as scientific as, as two plus two equals four, uh, emotions equals experience plus desire plus belief or desire plus belief plus experience. I mean, it's literally, that is literally the formula. This is not like made up or any kind of fancy thing. And it's literally how it works. So let me give you an example. Uh, if you're jealous, why are you jealous? Well, there are three things in play, right? So you want a person or thing or whatever, uh, you believe you should have it, or you deserve to have it. Uh, more importantly, you believe that probably someone else doesn't deserve to have it. Uh, <laughs> and then you have the experience of seeing that person with that thing or person. And so you feel jealous. It's those three things are required. And here's what, and let, me, let me break it down. Uh, if you didn't want that person or thing, then you wouldn't care. You wouldn't be jealous. If you believe that that person deserved it, you wouldn't be jealous. You would be, you would admire them. You wouldn't be jealous. And if you didn't see them, it would hurt less. 
<laughs> so you need all three of those things for the emotions to, to play. Now, why am I explaining this when we're talking about flow? Because flow is, a, you know, he, you know uh, uh, the, the psychologist who uh, uh, invented all this or figured, discovered all this uh, didn't actually describe it this way. But this is based on my research is what is actually at play here. Flow is both an emotion, but it's also a combination of those things. The flow experience is effectively optimal experience. And what is optimal experience? Well, he goes on to explain that optimal experience is when the difficulty of the task you're performing and your ability are in perfect match. Uh, that if it's too hard, then you get frustrated. If it's too easy, then you get bored. And so optimal experience, notice this, that optimal experience is, mm -hmm. my, is number two on my list. Uh, the flow is an emotional experience. Uh, it's the feeling of being in the zone, of being you know, completely enraptured in what you're doing. So it's an emotion too, and it's a combination of the experience plus your desire because you want to do the thing and your belief that you can do it because you're, you're matching that. So the reason why flow is such a cool idea is that it basically describes optimal experience for optimal growth. Uh, it's an emotional state that's providing feedback that you're in that flow state. And it does reflect that you're doing what you want to do, which is desire. He doesn't talk about that, but I, I that's what I'm doing. And then belief, that, that's not really mentioned at all anywhere. And I don't think I, mm -hmm. I reference it, but you have to believe that you can do it or else you wouldn't be doing it. Right. So um, there's a, there's a belief that you, that this is what you were meant to do, that people who have found their calling get into the flow state a lot when they're doing what they love. I've, I flagged it because I think you, you identify it as flow as an optimal condition for growth. And I had a, I had a laugh at myself and came up with two immediate examples that, that validate that the first is that like for is photography for me, I enter the state of flow when I'm behind my camera and I've got all my, my gear out and, and I'm doing what I would call photography compared to say taking pictures and and I've studied, I've studied photography, I have the requisite skills, and it's more about the challenge of the situation or the light or what I'm seeing or communicating. So it's, it's like the, in the learning world, I would call it like the higher order um, concepts of it, and not fumbling around with the camera and, you know, messing around with the tripod, they don't inhibit my, my, you know, action. The opposite of that for me is downhill skiing where downhill skiing is the the thing that I can identify in my life that I have never been able to improve on. And partly it's because I haven't done it enough, but it's also, I've done it enough to know like, hey, this isn't even a worthwhile experience for me um, because it brings out the absolute worst. And um, in the form of usually screeching from the top of a hill that's just too big for me, right? Like the, mm -hmm. and it's a rather extreme experience, but it is just one that I have, I have abandoned in favor of other winter outdoor activities that I don't feel like I need to insure my brain for. Mm -hmm. And, but other people can enter a state of flow while they're doing that. So it's very, it's very personal. Yeah. Exactly. Which is why uh, whenever I started writing the book, it's like, look, I'm not going to tell you what goal you should have, what you should be doing with your life. I'm not going to tell you what ethics to hold because you're going to find that. And this is the science behind how you will uh, know that you found it, how you will find it and how you can foster it. 
Um, it's not about telling you what whether down, downhill skiing uh, or photography is is right for you because you only you will know that. And I explained the formula in the emotions chapter because that's the formula you use to figure out if it works for you. Like I can't tell you whether it will work for you, but I can tell you how you will know. You will know by a your emotion, and that's how your emotions uh, respond. It's your emotions are your indicator of of um, uh, of your direction and velocity of of growth. Um, so if you are really excited about going to a concert, you're excited for that experience uh, and you can't wait for that to happen. That's the enthusiasm of, of having that new experience that you can't, that you can't wait to have. If you're frustrated, it means that something's in your way or you're, or you're in your own way <laughs> and you're not able to do it. And so you've got to, you know, find a way to get through or around that frustration or see, you know, the, see the stumbling blocks as a good thing or whatever you need to do to get your mind right, to switch your emotional state to one that's more constructive or positive listening to you speak and it is threaded throughout the book you um you can you can let me know if it's a value or an ethic or maybe a bit of both but mm-hmm. um but you seem to have a very um you're very precise about not wanting to tell other people what to, they should do think act or believe mm-hmm. where's where's that coming from um because you know doing the research doing the studying like people seem to have all the answers right uh, and look confidence it gets is infectious people want to be get behind people who are confident um you know i knew very well that if i wrote a book that uh, wasn't you know hey i have all the answers um that you know people are going to be like oh well i don't have to listen to him because he, he he doesn't you know have the answers it's like only you have the answers like you know that's the whole point um so but 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 i just like that's, you know, that's I, actually I why I, that's why I said yes to having you on here. Also, you do note the the, the podcast name, right? Like it's <laughs> we can you can seek knowledge and guidance, and even so far as mentoring. But ultimately, if we're not learning how to connect with what's true and right within us, what's it for? Yeah, and and so there were a lot of you know I grew up uh, Catholic a little bit, and, and I jokingly call it the. Uh, uh, God exists. So don't eat meat on Friday during Lent, uh, uh, problem. It's, it's the idea that like the, the ethics or rules you're following are so disconnected from why you're, you should be following them in the first place that you kind of don't even understand why you're doing it. Right. Um, and, and yeah, there's a long explanation for why people don't, you know, Catholics don't eat meat on Friday. So I'm just, I'm just using that as an example of how far removed, uh, an ethic can be from, you know, the whole, the reason why you believe anything. Can and you so explain it for the non-Catholics? Oh yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, oh geez. Uh, I'm going to butcher this. So forgive me, uh, but forgive uh, in advance. long story sh- so, <laughs> long story short is that, um, so, you know, God created the universe and then Jesus came and then, uh, uh, you know, he, uh, died for, for, uh, uh, our sins, uh, in the Catholic uh, faith. And, uh, so, uh, Lent was that, you know, that period of time before Easter, uh, where he, he died and, and rose again. Uh, so the idea of not eating meat, uh, was a, it was a, it was a, uh, uh, it's a, it's a symbol, symbolic act of, of personal sacrifice. Um, it's like, you know, giving up things for Lent, um, as a way to, um, uh, uh, to kind of show that you, you know, you're humble and, and so on and so forth. Uh, now the irony is that actually fish costs more than meat nowadays. <laughs> so there's kind of an irony to it. Right, so meat was the luxury and, and it was yeah. the, the reward. So this is like abstinence for a day. 
Yeah, exactly. And now, ironically, fish cost more, which is why I th- that's why I could talk about the ethics, you know, that come from values and all this jazz. I explain that in the book because weird things happen if you have these absolute simplistic rules that apply to everything, then whenever they don't apply anymore, but you keep following them. Uh, so the reason why I use that as the example is just because um, some people follow rules that they don't understand why they're following them or because they, that's how they're raised or things like that. Um, when you find out why, then then that's fine. Yeah, people do want to show a symbolic nature of sacrifice. Great. You know, I, I think you should understand the ethics you're following, though, personally. That's my personal opinion. But uh, the the reason why it's so uh, 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 close to my heart, though, to have written a book that didn't really tell anyone what to do is because um, I wanted to be the solution to that. Uh, I, you know, a lot of people fall for cults and stuff and, and that kind of thing. Uh, a lot of people, I mean, I, I don't need to tell you, um, that some people follow, uh, people, um, on faith to a, a point where it might actually be harmful to them. And so I didn't want that to happen. I, and, and, and here's the other thing is that, um, you know, I, everyone kind of says, hey, oh, they criticize things. Oh, they criticize religions. Or they criticize philosophies or they criticize this or they criticize that. It's like, okay, do you have a better option? And they usually, well, yeah, if I ruled the world, this is what I would do. And it's like, well, okay, but, you know, you're telling them to do what's best for you, not what's best for them. So it's like, well, what if I create a philosophy? We got rid of everything that people uh, criticized um, and then got rid of the, if I ruled the world, this is what I would do. And kind of go, well, this is how the world works. And then let me help you figure it out. And then you'll live the best life for you. And I was like, if I could create that better option, then I would be the best book that people should read first and then they can read any of the other books. I'm not telling you not to have, a, I mean, you can have whatever religion you want. You can have whatever belief system you want. You can have whatever philosophy you want and it's all well and good. Um, I just believe that you should understand how both scientifically and philosophically the world works and how people find meaning and then go and, and explore those other things because they're going to give you answers. And if those answers don't work for you, but you believe in that overall philosophy, you may start to hold beliefs that you don't actually want to have and that could be a problem yeah it can i i agree with you on that and and a lot of what you see in i guess i guess i'll use the i'm trying to get away from the the term self-help um Mm -hmm. and and for in the intents and purposes of what i'm doing is it's like self-growth and growing yourself but Mm -hmm. there's an industry called the self-help industry and a lot of what you see is people persatellizing what has worked for them as the way that you should do these things, do things. And then what can get really dicey is if it doesn't work for you, because it probably won't, you know, there might yeah. be some, some blanket um, principles that, that work, but when you get down to specifics in terms of how to run a business, how to, cause a lot of self-help centers around business and, and success and money, success and money, unfortunately, um, but, you know, it's when it does not work for you, then ostensibly there's something wrong with you. If you're, you know, so it can turn back on the self as something that is shaming, critical, and not particularly accurate. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a really good example of that. Um, and so let's take, uh, let's take people who are vegetarian or vegan, right? So there is an ethical system behind a lot of that, right? So, hey, I don't Mm want to harm animals, right? Okay, that's your ethic. Live by your ethic, right? Uh, But then there are probably some people on this planet who uh, might have to eat meat, right? Through some sort of genetic conditions. 
And absolutely right. When you switch it from a, an eth- a personal ethical choice to an ideology, let's call it that, um, mm-hmm. then when someone doesn't stops eating meat and then gets sick and then starts eating meat again and gets better, and then they go, oh, I tried that, but it didn't work for me, then the people who are... Um, want to call them zealots. I don't mean to be in that insulting way, just kind of people who are really far, far into the, philo- uh, the, the, the kind of worldview and not just the ethic. Um, they'll say, well, that was your fault. You could have just taken this vitamin or kind of done this and you would be better. And they don't really know that, to be honest. I mean, uh, they don't know what that person's individual nutritional needs are. So to like, you know, go from this is a personal ethical choice, which everyone has a a person, you know, find to do whatever you want. And then trying to like, uh, force people through judgment and, and what's the word, uh, shame and embarrassment to follow your ethics. Um, because you think it's the right way to live and everyone should live that way. But then you run into people who genuinely can't live the way that you do. And then you blame them for it. That, in my opinion, that's wrong. That's, that's my personal opinion. I believe that's wrong, but you know, everyone will have their own, um, you know, ultimately have their own ethics and values. I had a weird experience, um, a couple of years ago where somebody, and this is somebody who I worked with when I, when I was in university. So, you know, we worked in a, in a bar together and, mm-hmm. and through Facebook, we got reconnected. And of course my, you know, it, it got very lightly touched on there, but my story is out there. It's very quite public. And so they, she reached out to me because she was going to go on some workshops and do um, not a sweat lodge, but um, ayahuasca and wanted to know, she figured if anyone she knew had done it, it would be me. And I hadn't, but we got into this big conversation and, and I just, you know, I said to her, you know, I, I support what you're doing here. You know, if you're going to go into that environment, if, since you're asking, I'm just going to give you some things that I wish I had known before um, the sweat lodge. And I just very, just, you know, and understanding at that time, and it wasn't all that easy for me to be forthcoming with this stuff. And, and so I would just, you know, a few things to watch for as, as far as just awareness of leadership and so forth. So everything went, everything went fine. She went, she did the retreat, um, but she came out of the retreat, a, um, a vegan. And then before mm-hmm. I knew it, she was on my Facebook. I, I posted um, a picture of pulling the Thanksgiving turkey out of the oven. Mm-hmm. And she started calling me a murderer on yeah. my, on, on my Facebook wall. And I was like, holy crap. Mm-hmm. What happened? Yeah. And, and it's it's the whole thing about like people, uh, once they find ethics that work for them, uh, it's a weird social, uh, uh, what's the word? Um, social, uh, inherent social uh, act that we do that we, once we find something that works for us, we want everyone to do it. In fact, you mentioned all the success books, a lot of people who, who like write success books about money. Let's, let's get rid of the people who like are, are frauds and, and don't actually didn't, weren't actually successful or they were successful because they sold self-help books. <laughs> but let's take the people who really were successful and then wrote a book about it to help others. And they genuinely do mean well. 
Um, well, you know, their advice isn't going to work for everybody. You know, I, it, it just isn't. Um, but that doesn't mean they shouldn't write the book. I mean, maybe it will work for some people and, and for the right audience and the right situation right. and people willing to put in the work, whatever will work for them. Great. You know, like I said, I, it, it, you know, people I, I want to make their own choices, but then like the people will read it and go, well, this is the only way to be successful. People would just kind of go down the rabbit hole where it's like, this is the only way to think. This is the only way to live. This is the only way to act. And if you do not act in the same way that I deem to be appropriate, then you are a monster. And it's, I believe that that's, uh, that that's where things get a little um, out of hand and that you have, there has to be some sort of live and let live. Again, I don't write that in the book. That's my personal opinion, but mm -hmm. I do think to some extent, um, we have to accept do, the fact that people have, yeah. I'm, I'm going to show up as, as, as a reader and say, I, I kind of think you do. I think it's, mm -hmm. it may not be overtly stated, but mm -hmm. by presenting a full out 80 page chapter on ethics, I, I can't. And to me, that's what makes this value, this book valuable to be mm -hmm. most valuable, to be honest, yeah. because it's not an area that others are really exploring, at yeah. least not in this space. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's hard because it's like, and I write, and this is what I do write. I do write the, I do use the, uh, 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 where, how far do ethics apply? What are the boundaries of ethics? And what, what's really cool about ethics, this is what people don't get. Uh, they, they, they don't talk about this when people say, hey, here are the rules you should follow. But this is what, how ethics work. This is literally how it evolved. Ethics started with just single-celled organisms just doing whatever, right, randomly, right? And uh, but, 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 but microscopic organisms actually do show signs, even bacteria and such, show signs of cooperation. As in they that like move together. That freaks me out. As somebody yeah. who had a big eye infection most of this year, that freaks yeah. me out. Yeah. And so, uh, and, and life evolved to survive, right? And so they're cooperating, cooperating with other living organisms, make you more likely to survive. So ethics are important to enable cooperation because if you can't trust your, you know, other living organisms to not hurt you, then you can't trust them. So you have to act like they're your enemy, right? And so that's why humans developed, well, not even humans, social animals, let's stick with social animals. So social animals evolved uh, these ethics uh, to take care of thing, uh, of their close family, right? Their offspring, basically, is the start, start with that, start to take care of your offspring. Um, I don't think there's any evidence that single-celled organisms take care of their offspring. <laughs> I, they, they do cooperate, but I, they, I don't think they, they have that in, in instinct. Uh, I have to go look that up. But, uh, but, but social animals do. So like if you have children, then you take care of it, right? Take care of them so that uh, because you protect them because that's basically your, you know, uh, uh, what's his face? Uh, uh, Darwin? <laughs> uh, oh, good. Uh, not no. Darwin. Uh, uh, the the more recent uh, uh, Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins and the selfish gene talk about how uh, the reason why you care about your relatives is because you're actually being selfish because they have part of your genetic code and your, gen and your genes are, are quote unquote selfish. Um, uh, uh, because you want to carry on your genes. So you take care of people who are related to you because, uh, they, they have some of your genes. Um, so you, so you evolve ethics because like, well, I value my own life. I value the people who have the same genetic code as me. <laughs> and then what happened is as society got human society, got, got safer. You started to apply ethics to a broader and broader scope of individuals because uh, at the beginning it was just you versus the world, uh, you being like a single cell organism. Then it became you and 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 people you could cooperate with because you could communicate. I, I write the five things uh, that you need to have to be able to to have uh, to be accountable for your for your ethics at, at this at this level of, of human uh, evolution. Uh, but uh, the um, uh, but yeah, we're expanding the boundaries because we're safer. 
So it's like, well, I can now agree with other humans, other societies that, okay, you don't kill me and I don't kill you. And now we're safe. You know, now we've agreed to that. But if you can't trust them to not kill you, then you can't have, you can't apply your the same ethics that you apply to your brother to th- this other society because, mm-hmm. well, geez, they're the enemy, right? <laughs> um, so what well, happened actually, is- And I want to, yeah, I want to jump please, on that because please. I think that's something that I've, that I've experienced firsthand is, you know, when you go out into the world, especially if you grow up in a very supportive community, family or community, like I did, I didn't say anything earlier, but I also grew up Catholic. I went to Catholic schools and, um, and when you go out into the world and you find that, Oh, surprise, you're dealing with somebody who does not even remotely share the same beliefs, values, ethics as you, um, I've been on the losing end of that stick more than once exactly. because, you know, I'm inherently trusting because I extend the characteristics of myself and the people who are like me to other people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that just seems to be so, you know, pertinent to what you're, what you're saying. Yeah. And, and we're so safe now and we can control the environment so much now that people are expanding those ethics to other living organisms that are close enough to us like animals. And, but the thing is I write in the book, it's like, look, there is a limit to that because you're killing trillions of organisms probably on a regular basis, right? Because you're killing bacteria, you're killing viruses. Um, we can have a debate about whether viruses are life or not. They used to call it like non-life uh, entity or something, but I think they're, oh they're agreeing it's life now. Uh, yeah. But uh, you you have to kill, uh, you kill uh, pests uh, so that you can eat food that's healthy and not diseased. <laughs> you got to kill bugs so that they don't bite you and transmit those diseases to you, like yeah, so you don't get Lyme disease or whatever. Uh, and then uh, you, you, you got to kill these things. Life has to die. There's no there's no magical future in which all living things can peacefully coexist because as long as parasites exist, uh, because because some creatures evolved uh, to live off of other creatures, humans included. Uh, even if we don't eat animals, we're still eating plants. Uh, and so that was li- life. That is life. And once you eat it, it's no longer alive. <laughs> it's dead. So there is a limit to how far you can push ethics. I'm not going to say where that line is because you will figure it out for yourself. Um, but there is a reality that we live in in which that uh, we consume other living or at least organic matter if we want to go that far. But we consume other living things and we have to accept the fact that we can you can push it as if you want. Uh, and that's fine. But you have to accept the fact that at some point you're killing bacteria, you're killing pests, you're killing mice. You exist and you have to take up space, which means other animals can't take up that space. So at some point you have to uh, kill things to live. Sorry. <laughs> I don't yeah, know what to tell and you. And yet you, no, no, thank you for disabusing me of that notion, right? Like it's, <laughs> <laughs> um, th- what relates to this conversation is if you take this to, to scale, to like societal scale, to world scale, where... Yeah. Um, and this may be, um, well, we'll just see where this goes. As an individual, I have to eat something. I can't eat the lamp and survive, right? Yeah. So I'm either eating plant or um, or animal or something in between. And that's about it. Um, but when we look at the overall planet, it's clear that like there's there's balances and imbalances. And I and out of full empathy for my vegan friend I know she was coming from I I know where the values were that she was coming from on that and I'm in agreement and alignment with those values but not at the extent of you know verbally abusing someone who isn't conforming to my idea in that moment 
mm-hmm. you know, for, yeah. for all she knew that could have been my only meat protein source that month. Um, right? Like I have a, qu- I have a question for you on that. Um, yeah. What is the difference between atrocity and justice? Oh God. It's a trick question. Um, the answer is there isn't uh, whether whether someone did something to you first. <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, so I now <laughs> I now, now here think about this because if someone I wanted if, to call you, you smartass there for a second, now I'm thinking if, about it. If you beat the crap out of somebody, you're a bad person, right? We could all agree on that. But if they if they like punched your spouse in the face first, eh, then you're like, oh, that's okay. That's just justice, right? It's the only difference between something grossly unethical and uh, something that's justice is whether uh, it's reciprocity or not. And and that's what's cool that oh, in the ethics chapter, right? I talk about there are th- reciprocity and fairness. There are three universal, near universal, because they're not perfectly universal because they conflict with each other. So therefore they can't by definition be universal, but there are three near universal ethics. So I say, look, I'm not going to tell you what ethics you should have, but I can tell you scientifically that there are three near universal ethics based on uh, which ones that everyone applies. Reciprocity, fairness, and minimal harm. Minimal harm to things you care about or things you value to to be exact, but I just put minimal harm. Um, And why is that? Because uh, you value your life, so you don't want to hurt yourself. You value the lives of people you care about, so you don't want to hurt them. So that's where the minimal harm comes from. It's instinctual. Uh, You just do it. Uh, uh, reciprocity and fairness though, are the two, I remember ethics are about maximizing your own growth without hurting anybody else. So fairness and reciprocity are intrinsic, uh, inherent, uh, ethics we have because, uh, we, the only way to have trust is to believe that if I help someone else, they're going to help me. Uh, and, and the only way to keep them online is if they hit me, I'm going to hit them back. Because if, if there's no consequence to you hitting someone, then someone might, you know, people are inherently selfish. They care about yourself first. Not, again, nothing inherently wrong with that as long as you're not hurting anyone else. Uh, but when you say, okay, well, I care about me and you have something I want, so I want to punch you and take it, um, then that's where it becomes wrong. And so the fairness and reciprocity are necessary because, first of all, that's unfair. Uh, and then secondly, uh, you have to be willing to reciprocate. If you hit me, I'm going to hit you. If you're nice to me, I'm going to be nice to you. And if you don't do that, if you break those ethics, you inherently hurt people, like not hurt people, um, you inherently uh, disgust people, right? Nothing disgusts people more than hypocrisy, right? Hypocrisy is basically unfair, right? It's the, it's the epitome of being unfair. Um, but yeah, so the um, when it comes to the um, uh, the the ethics of uh, of reciprocity, uh, that that when I talk about what's the difference between ju- justice and, and atrocity, is that it's so funny if you it, uh, um, we're seeing this today in a lot of different uh, uh, situations. Uh, I won't get into any of them, but just to kind of give examples of, of we talk about justice as if like we should do the we should do the same thing that someone's ancestors did to my ancestors to them today, and that's justice. And it's like, well, no, it's not because that you're hurting. Sounds a more new like person. revenge. Yeah, it's a revenge, and you're re- taking revenge on someone new, and you're just going to perpetuate the cycle. I talk about that that this ethic uh, down, downward spiral of uh, of uh, uh, what's the word uh, uh, ethical downward spiral where where if you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back, but I'm going to hurt you with a little bit of interest, right? <laughs> I'm going to hurt you a little bit more right. <laughs> because you deserve it as punishment, so you don't do it again. But then they're going to say, "Well, what I did wasn't bad, and what you did was terrible, so I'm going to hurt you." more than you hurt me with a little bit of interest. And I would say, well, so it's compound interest. <laughs> yeah. It's like that vicious cycle, right? Like 
which is why the justice system of modern uh, government governments exists today, because you have to stop that cycle or also we'll just keep, you know, blood feuds, right. You, you, you know, the, where people's, you know, yeah. five generations down keep killing each other's relatives because they, 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 they did something to them 500 years ago or whatever. You have to stop it. So the, the, the justice system exists to pull people out of that cycle and say, we're going to have an objective evaluation of whether that act was wrong. We're going to have an objective way to apply a penalty. And then we're going to call this even, and just stop it. So you have to accept the fact that that was justice and you cannot act like you now have justification to go and hurt that person more. And that's the mm. only way you can stop that vicious cycle from occurring. But the reason why I asked that question is because um, it's really scary right now that people are not realizing that ethics, while you know, there's a, someone might have violated, violated your ethics and, and, and you have every right to want uh, justice, but justice is not revenge. Justice is not uh, wanting to do the exact same thing. It's not eye for an eye. It's not, um, you know, let's, let's punish these new people who just because they have the same, whatever, you know, skin color or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, we're going to punish these people. Like that is a very dangerous game and it's not going to end well. Yeah. Yeah, we're seeing, and I mean, there's so many examples, especially this, you know, 2020. Um, I think maybe uh, an interesting one to to look at, and I was thinking a lot about our pandemic, reading the ethics yeah. chapter, where looking at it through ethical lens and minimal harm, we have these trade-offs. And in many um, cases, it's trading off the viability of a business to prevent harm to others sight unseen unknown unrelated yeah Yeah. and vice versa yeah that's that's the ultimate i mentioned the ultimate trade-off in ethics there the the ultimate trade-off in ethics is it's very simple freedom and safety it's a trade-off people people say well i'm free to do this if i'm safe it's like no, no 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 you're using the term freedom wrong like you just mean you're you're safe to do it. You're not free to do it. Free is in you're able to do it. You're not using the word free in the same way. Freedom and safety are inherently traded off. So if I, let's say I'm in the middle of the wilderness, right? And a bear might come and attack me. So I build a wall around my little, you know, my little camp, right? Um, that wall uh, makes me more safe from the bear, but it makes me less free. I am less free. You're like, well, I could open a door. It's like, yeah, okay. But you can't, just walk right through that wall. You, the wall is there. You have to go around it. You are now less free. You're more safe. You're less free. That trade-off exists no matter what, that it will be a trade-off for, for, for all time. Um, and so at what degree people hold, whether that you're like a libertarian, for example, and you hold freedom to the utmost importance, uh, or you're, uh, let's go, go to the other side of the spectrum socialists, where you hold the public good to the highest level of importance then uh, at those two extremes, you are willing to give up one for the other. So for example, or you're unwilling to give up one for the other, I should say. Um, so like, if, if, let's just take like a libertarian, just philosophy, no, no politics or anything. Yeah, um, we made an but, agreement before we came yeah. on. Not that we don't even have a clue what each other's politics are, but we made an agreement yeah. to, to be able to talk about these things in the absence of politics, yeah. to be able to actually yeah. talk about the ideas and of it. And an understanding. Yeah, and so we're talking, and so we're talking about the philosophy, not the politics. So the philosophy, yeah. libertarian philosophy, is that as long as I'm not hurting anyone, I should be able to do whatever I want. That's let's just stick with that. I'm yeah. sure there are more technical definitions. But we're sticking with philosophy. On the socialist side, it's to be everybody should be as safe as humanly possible, and if there's a certain risk to anyone, then we need to uh, mitigate that risk. And again, we're sticking with the philosophy. 
So uh, those philosophies are inherently in conflict, right? <laughs> so take COVID. COVID is the ultimate example of those two philosophies in conflict because you have personal freedom and you have public safety. And everyone's going to have their own spot on the continuum. And I even, in fact, at the end of my ethics chapter, I have these these examples. I have some really bizarre examples, like uh, to what, what when does murder become uh, justified killing, right? Uh, and it's like if someone, you know, a, 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 what do you call it, a despot, like murders people, the mass murders, like that's bad. And on the other hand, I have well, if someone's like um, killing your uh, your best friend, or your spouse, or something, can, can you kill them? It's like, yeah, of course, because they're killing them. <laughs> like you can stop them. Um, so, like those are examples of how ethics are situational, right? So uh, in a COVID example, it's like, well, it's such the, it's the, it's the biggest test that we'll, we may ever have. Maybe, I don't know, because it's something that we know it, you, you don't know if you have it. And so if you go somewhere and you have it, but you don't know you have it, and then you give it to somebody else, then were you unethical? It's like, well, I didn't know, right. And didn't know is kind of part of ethics, right? You have to have intent to harm for you to be guilty of a crime in, in our modern society. And so uh, if you didn't know you had a disease and you gave it to somebody else, there was no intent. So you'd argue that that person wasn't necessarily at fault. And because of that, the public safety person will, well, if you don't know, then we have to just, everyone should just stay at home for as long as it takes until it goes away or we get a vaccine or something. But then the libertarian side, the, the, the personal freedom side, they would say, well, that's hugely oppressive. Uh, that you mm-hmm. are restricting someone's freedom and right to grow on their own terms with as long as they're not hurting anybody else. And you're, you're restricting them for no reason. And so therefore you're violating their natural human rights. Who's right. I don't know. I, I, I have my personal opinion. I will not share it on this uh, just for the, cause I don't want to influence anyone uh, in any way. Uh, but that is the conflict. It will exist forever. Uh, it, there's no magical answer. It's only, the, Oh, I say this a lot in the book. I, I will say it here. There is no magical answer. There's only an answer that everyone can agree on. <laughs> yeah, and everyone or, can agree on it through voting or through, you know, um, a force, you know, it's another option of getting people to agree on something. But that's that's the only answer to that to that question. It's yeah. And it's as I was reading it, I and you were you were and I know that a book takes a long time to write. So this was written before COVID. If it's out now, seven years. Yeah, in my hands. So you had the free, it's the freedom versus safety there. And you're looking at it play out. I think what some of the, some of the things that make this harder is the fact that it's invisible. Yeah. Indiscriminate. And where the trade-offs are like, what's the measure of harm? Right, the the harm yeah. on on the family whose business is lost, and the mental health of the people who are really struggling with the isolation and the virus, and it's been a really. Yeah. I'll speak. This is this. Um, you you go where you want to go, but as far yeah. as your uh, boundaries, but I'll just speak to a little bit. It's really sure, been please. a challenge because, like, I'll, on my hand, my business. Um, I know I know some coaches are did quite well, but I'm so many of the people who I was supporting their businesses were shut down. And so I, 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 by proxy um, experienced the, you know, the impact of that. My husband worked for an airline that closed in March and still isn't open. Like we took a huge financial cost thanks to the pandemic. My mom's 80 and in ill health. So at the other end of the spectrum, we have to be, um, very, very careful with how we proceed because we're part of her primary support network. And it's this constant negotiation 
between exactly. one extreme of the spectrum to the other. And given I'm highly empathetic, so I feel for everybody, <laughs> you yeah. know, feel and see everything. Thank you for that. That's a really fantastic point. And it's something that I think all the listeners should take away from this, from what you said, which is that um, th- there are two sides of this debate. There's the public safety side and there's the individual freedom side. And those are both good values. And there are ethics you can follow in line with those values that are, are, are well-meaning or good or whatever you want to say. And that, so if you stand on further on one side than the other, than someone else, that doesn't make the other person bad. It doesn't mean that they don't care. It doesn't mean that they're evil. It doesn't mean that they want people to die or want people to be broke or want people to suffer or whatever. It just means that they have picked their part of the spectrum. They've drawn the line and they want the policy to reflect that. And it will have consequences. Uh, and that and we nobody's all getting out of this without consequences. Exactly. That's yeah. the thing. And the There's thing so that bothers much you me, can't control. Exactly. And, and I'll, this is the only personal opinion I'll inject into it. And it is, is my personal opinion is that I, I only want to engage in this conversation with like anybody um, if they're willing to acknowledge the consequences of uh, what they believe is the ultimately the right decision uh, and that they're willing to accept it and acknowledge them. If they're not, if they're, if they're going to say, oh, it's all magical fairies, if we do it our way. Um, then I, I don't want to engage with that person because they're being disingenuous because they're, because they're just, well, they're either wrong or they're, they're ignorant. I don't know. Because like, for example, if you, if you shut, let's say you shut down uh, the country for, I mean, the country, uh, shut, shut down the country for two months, but it's not going to do anything for two months. You're going to stay inside and then uh, vaccine will come or whatever. Like the, 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 the uh, alcoholism, the domestic abuse, the deaths uh, from people who didn't go to the doctor, um, I mean, I'll tell you personally, I've actually and not even suffered for not COVID, this. right? Like people yeah. not going to the doctor be, and because they have yeah. chest pains or something going on. That's not COVID. I think that's yeah. a huge concern. Yeah. I just got diagnosed with a vitamin D deficiency because I've been inside for eight months. And I didn't go outside. And I, I mean, that's the kind of stuff we're paying for, 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 for making these uh, decisions. And as long as people are willing to acknowledge that and try to find the right balance, then I'll engage with that conversation and say, okay, let's, let's find that right, that right balance. And it's just a lot of people just don't want to do that, that, that they'll say, hey, look, I'm either like adamantly, oh, you shouldn't infringe on my rights at all. Or on the other side, they're going to say, hey, you shouldn't. Um, uh, uh, we should shut down until until further notice. And and a lot of people who have those opinions are 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 usually the ones who like get to work from home or whatever. It's like, look, you don't have the luxury. Like, <laughs> you're not you're not a nurse or you're not a police officer. You're not a a, a person you're putting you know packaging meat or whatever it is that someone has to be there to do the thing, and they're exposing themselves to a much higher risk than someone who's working from home. And for the person working from home, everyone should just work from home. And it's like. That it's not realistic. Yeah, so, how are you going to um, eat if everybody works from home? It's just not going to yeah, work. That, that's my only personal opinion on injecting this is just that you yeah. need to have an honest conversation. You need to acknowledge that freedom and safety are trade-offs and you have to make them and you have, will have a different line than someone else. And you should respect that line as long as they're being uh, coming to the table with uh, a fair, objective, 360-degree view, and, and and you're welcome to have that opinion. And and people are going to disagree. There is no right answer, just one that everyone ultimately agrees on. Um, if you don't mind, I, I might layer on, too, that um, I think when we get into that territory, it's useful to look at what we each look at as what do I see as freedom and what do I see as safety? 
right? Like the freedom in many ways, as constraining as this year has been, mm-hmm. I've experienced a ton of freedom because I overtly engaged in a number of creative projects that I would have never engaged in before. So I've got a half minute written memoir. I've got a podcast that's thriving, um, you know, and I've been making. So that's freedom. But Mm -hmm. on the other hand, I'm extremely frustrated because I can't get A, B, C, and D the way that I would like to. Yeah. Right. Like it's, it's a big one. I like, we're all, I feel like we're all being called to really get a, an understanding of it. And given that ethics outside of an academic community, how often do we talk overtly about ethics? Like maybe ethics should be what is in the news as far as, you know, the, the background and, and what's being discussed. Yeah. Well, I love, I actually, in my personal life, love talking politics because politics are just ethics applied. They're just applied ethics. Mm. Um, It's like, okay, so we have these ethics. So therefore we're setting these rules or laws or whatever policies or whatever. That's all it is. And it's, and that's why I love it. I I don't like care. I don't care about the, like, you know, the, the, the the drama of it all, but I love Mm. talking about the uh, philosophy at all because it is a trade-off between freedom and safety. It's like, okay, I think I want you to do this. It's like, okay, yeah. But what about the people who want to do this? And you're preventing them from doing that. And they're like, well, you know, collateral damage or whatever. It's like, yeah, you know, you got, everyone's got to make some sacrifices. Mm-hmm. Like, eh, yeah, but you're, at what point, what, at what point would that be uh, oppressive to, uh, to prevent them from doing wh- whatever it is we're talking about? And I love having those conversations because there's no right answer. You get, you know, you gotta keep thinking about it, thinking about it. And that's why the law is so complex. I always joke, I, I wrote in the uh, book. I don't make too many jokes in the book, but it, uh, some things are amusing to me. And that one was one of the things that are amusing to me is that the reason why the law is so complex is because ethics are complex, right? It's like, you know, what I, I, you know, I, I keep making the joke about punching people in the face. It's like, well, you know, when is it okay to punch someone in the face? It's like, well, you think, well, it's never okay to punch someone in the face. It's like, well, no, that's not true. If someone punches you in the face first, it's perfectly fine to punch them back in the face. Uh, if you both agree Whether you to do it, it or not. Boxing, yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, if you're if you're both boxers and you agree to punch each other in the face, then it's perfectly ethical. <laughs> so, like, it, there are the ethics are not simple and universal mm-hmm. and for all time. Uh, they change over time. My my favorite example I, I give I don't know if I put it in the book, but I, I give it in, in podcasts is um, is it ethical to uh, tell your kids? Um, to go into this, you know, family business, or to you know, kind of direct them toward like being something that you wanted to be when you grew up, like a football player or something. And anyone today would say, no, absolutely not. Everyone watched the '80s teenage coming of age films where it's like, you just want me to be a quarterback because that's was your dream, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so, like, that's what everyone thinks of. Oh, that's wrong. But if you think about it, let's go back to the 1700s, to the 1500s, the you know 1300s. Uh, a small business is very difficult to get started in that time, and you have a large family. You probably have like 10 kids or whatever, and part of the family. And if you don't take on that family business, the whole family could die, right? So, is it okay to push someone into taking on the family business? Eh, in that situation, sounds ethical. If it means to the actually- family survival. Exactly. I think it is ethical to uh, coax someone into sticking around and taking care of the business in that situation. But in today's situation, yeah, everyone's got the freedom uh, to do whatever they want and they can be successful um, to force uh, someone to do what you think is, is right for them is is wrong in this context. But it's all contextual. And it also like it points back to when ethics become beliefs. Yeah. And and detached from fact. Oh, that's, oh, that's really hard. Yeah. Um, 
because I, I write in the book a lot about how you have to test your beliefs constantly because mm-hmm. uh, I made the joke about there are some beliefs that are, are pretty solid, like the, you know, the, the sun's going to rise in the East every day, right? <laughs> you, you can be pretty. Hey, I once and, held a, I once held the belief that I could return to New York City and go up the World Trade Center in the summer of 2000. I held that belief. At the yeah. time, I thought it was fact. I have a, that's yeah. a literal true story. Yeah. And, and, and your beliefs. That illustrates that perfectly. Yeah. Well, my, my favorite example is um, I, lo- I lock the door or did I leave the iron on or things like that, right? Because you know that you did it because you have the memory of doing it. Um, well, let's just assume your memory is correct for the sake of argument. You could argue that your memory is wrong, but let's say you did it. You know yeah, you did it. You there. remember doing it. You leave. <laughs> and you're pretty sure no one else was there. So, you're okay, no one else is there. I left it on. So, oh, therefore, I left it on. I got to go back. You don't know. Someone could have broken your house and turned off the iron for you. <laughs> you know, it could have happened. It's unlikely, but it's possible. So it's a belief. It's not knowledge. So that's the thing about. Um, I'm not saying that we need people need to get all super. Oh, I know this is for to be true, and I have to say no. I believe this to be true. It's fine. You can say knowledge. It's it's common uh, vernacular to say you know something. Uh, like I know I left the iron on. It's, I'm not going to call you out on it. But but the uh, the idea that beliefs are constantly subject to being wrong at any given point in time is a very scary thought. Uh, But it's one that um, you have to be open to because you, you never know when you'll be wrong. Um, And if you hold something to be true and it's not, and you're not willing to test it just to make sure uh, then you could, I always call it marching off the cliff, like the Wile E. Coyote mm. um, thing where, where you keep running, there's no ground under you and you, <laughs> you fall. Um, that's what beliefs will do you if they prove, if, if they, you're marching forward and then when your beliefs pr- prove to be false, there's no ground on, on, uh, in front of you and then you fall off and you don't even know why because you you thought there was ground there, right? Yeah, and and the sad and very real, maybe it's not sad, maybe it's it's a freeing thing, but... I think a lot of people can relate at some point where something that they believed to be true was not, whether it was unconscious or, you know, inherited through environment, generational, or even understanding or misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of it examining them on a regular basis. I've, I've always is, is interesting. I haven't done that in a while. I examine my values more often than I examine my beliefs. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point about reexamining your values. Um, I didn't talk too much about uh, values in the book other than to explain that that's where ethics, why ethics exist is because you want to set rules to protect things you value. Um, I didn't really talk about where values came from because um, I don't know. I just, I found it kind of going off the too, too far off. Um, plus I, I don't even know how to explain it. It's like, you, you, how do you explain the fact that you, you, you uh, place significance or importance on something because you do like, you know, I know you biologically, you value your own life because otherwise you'd be dead. <laughs> like, I know that, but like, wh- you know, why do you, wh- why do let's go back to my little, uh, back to your little sculpture. why do I, why do I value yeah. this? I don't know. Like it's, <laughs> what does it mean? Cause I made you? it. <laughs> yeah. Cause I gave it significance because right. I gave it significance. I, 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 there's no way to explain that. It's kind of a self-referential definition. And I don't, I, so I didn't really go into that. Cause I was like, Oh, that's going to get too, that's not too philosophically and, fl- fl- and fluffy and not really scientific. So I kind of didn't go into that. So, but I like your idea about like you, you test your values more than your beliefs because um, yeah, man, I got to tell you, I have a hard time 
uh, with my own beliefs, right? So like you want to believe in a better future and, and you want to believe in people and all this other stuff. But then every time something proves you wrong, right? Like someone does something the opposite way. Uh, uh, in fact, I talked about this. I, I, actually, let me let me give the audience a little context. Um, so actually, I'll, I'll even go further back and give people a little personal journey I had. So I mentioned I was raised Catholic, but then I kind of... I. I don't know if I would say I was an atheist. I guess maybe I was an atheist. Um, I, but I kind of, when I finished writing the book, I kind of came full circle on this in the sense that um, uh, I, I was kind of dr- trained through school and all this other stuff that, like, you know, beliefs you couldn't prove were stupid. Uh, but when I wrote the belief chapter, I 180'd it completely because uh, all religion and philosophies and all these things, what what are what is the distilled essence of these beliefs? It's a belief in a positive outcome. That's all it is. Whether you believe in God to, as the means through which you, believe, you want to attain a positive outcome or you believe in a lot of attraction or you believe in uh, 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 Scientology or whatever, whatever you believe is because you believe it will lead it, that, that having that belief will lead to a positive outcome, whether it's a negative belief or a positive belief. Like if you believe that touching a hot stove is going to hurt you, you hold that belief because then you don't get hurt and you're better off for it. Um, if you uh, believe that um, praying every day will be beneficial to you and then you do it and then you feel better about yourself, then that's a belief that you're better off having prayed than you than if you hadn't prayed. And so the beauty of beliefs is that you actually have to have um, a belief in a positive outcome without evidence at some point, because otherwise uh, you would just self-fulfilling prophecy um, find uh, terrible things to, cause you know, people are starving every day in the world. People are dying every day in the world. Mm-hmm. If all you did was look for those true things that exist in this reality, you would, you would be miserable for the rest of your life. So you have to have beliefs in positive outcomes. Yeah. And let alone the negativity bias, right? Like yeah, we are, and, and you, maybe you, you've done the research probably. Um, my understanding is that we're all pretty much biased towards the negative. So if you yeah. didn't have something to bridge away from that, where would we all be on, on a day-to-day basis? Exactly. So the reason why I came full circle on, on I, I will never, ever again um, make fun of or because as an atheist, I have a little bit of arrogance. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> never going to do that ever again. Because at the end of the belief chapter, I realized that you need to have beliefs without evidence. You need to have faith. Faith is actually a critical part of finding meaning in your life. And I don't mean faith in a God. I just mean faith in general, which is the belief of a, po- a positive outcome without mm-hmm. evidence. Because yeah, whether you apply that to yourself, other people, organizations, that's, that's up yeah. to you. If you want meaning, you have to have faith. Uh, and, um, and, and the faith is just the belief in positive outcome without evidence. And so a lot of people believe in God. I, I will never criticize ever again. Uh, uh, in fact, now I'm actually kind of critical of hardcore, what they call new atheists now, the in-your-face ones. Um, I'm kind of critical of that, uh, the, that group of people now because I, I, I'm looking at them now through this new lens after writing the book and going, why would you take someone's faith away, you know, faith in a positive future, positive outcome away from them? I get that. Yeah. Maybe you don't want them to, I don't know, uh, think that, uh, that, that, that they're, that they're bad people. If they do something that the, you know, scripture says is bad and, and you don't think is bad. I get, I understand that. And I, I respect that, but there's a difference between, uh, saying, Hey, maybe you should rethink this one specific ethic and hey, your whole belief system is a house of cards, and I'm going to rip it apart, and then make you believe in nothing, 
And then you're not going to necessarily have belief that anything is worth doing. I'm going to take your entire meaning and existence away from you. That seems kind of <laughs> harsh now through this new lens I've seen it. And so it's my hardest, uh, but my whole point of this whole story was that I'm having a hard time because I kind of went to the, like, without evidence, I don't believe to a point where I'm like, well, I have to believe in positive outcomes without evidence, or you cannot achieve your full potential. And so I'm still trying to work on this day. How do I have faith? I, 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 um, I don't know. I, I, I didn't think it was Mm -hmm. necessary. And then when I wrote the book, I realized it is. And I mean, I had enough faith to write the book. That requires faith. Thank you for sharing that. That's there's something so um well, I was trusting in sharing that first of all. So I thank you for that. It's also beautiful. And in the, my ex, it, my experience has shown me that any time it doesn't matter if they're incredibly spiritual or incredibly atheist or nihilistic as soon as someone starts thinking that they and their people are smarter than everyone else and somehow know better or more, that is a slippery slope that never ends well. Yeah. Well, I have a, I have a firm stance on that uh, personally is that um, uh, you cannot scientifically disprove the existence of non-physical because by definition, science is the study of the physical universe. So therefore you can never scientifically prove anything that is not physical. Therefore you cannot definitively say it does not exist. Therefore, if you do say that, then you are scientifically wrong. <laughs> so it's just kind of silly. Um, but I, 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 I uh, you, you'll, you'll know at the very beginning of the book, I say, look, I don't argue for the existence or non-existence of the non-physical, uh, whatever it is, uh, because I cannot scientifically talk about it. And, and, and by definition you cannot. Um, so I'm going to put it aside. Um, and I also think that you don't need it because these eight concepts apply, whether you're a believer in the non-physical or not. So, uh, who cares? Am I just for the sake of the book, yep. like writing the book and well, learning it's these an things, interesting, it's an interesting thought to me going right back to the book title that, I mean, on one level, you had to know when you're titling a book, the meaning of life, that you're inviting that conversation. Um, yeah. and, but also that your meaning of the meaning of your life is that personal that it can be just as meaningful regardless of your belief system. Mm-hmm. And, but it's, it's the journey to figure it out. And I, 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 uh, I enjoyed the book because of that, because a, it was different than a lot of the books that I've read late, lately. I love the non-physical and the metaphysical but I also appreciate and live in the phys- in the physical and the scientific, right? So yeah. that's what to me that's what what keeps life interesting. Um, but it comes down to, and I think this is a, a perfect thing to to bring everything together with. It's like your choice, your agency, and we can be willing to explore and learn and grow. And if growth is the reason that we're here and growth brings the meaning, then that makes perfect sense. Exactly. Exactly. And it's funny. A lot of people say, well, how do you know growth is the meaning of life? Um, well, the first thing you need to do is define your terms. And most people say I'm wrong. Uh, we'll define meaning differently than, than I am. So it's like, well, we're, if we're not using the same terms, then of course you're going to have a, a different conclusion. So this is kind of silly to, to debate it. Um, but there are many definitions of meaning, right? So there's the actual definition of life. There's the purpose of life. There's the intent. There's the, um, 
Well, there are a bunch of different ones uh, that can be, uh, people mean like the outcome or goal, or some people mean the cause. And, and you'll notice at the very beginning, I say, well, the cause we're just going to dismiss because I, you know, I can't prove if it was non-physical um, or physical. Uh, but uh, growth satisfies three of those definitions, the ones you can at least prove, right? It's part of the definition of life. Go ahead and look up the de definition of life in the dictionary. Growth is like, that is literally like the capacity to grow is like the definition of life. Yeah. <laughs> so it is the meaning of life, literally in terms of definition. Uh, the purpose, all life exists. What does it exist to do? It doesn't exist to not die, although that's all you can scientifically prove, but it exists to grow. So it exists to grow. That's its purpose. Every living organism shares that per common purpose. Uh, to what end? Uh, you pick your end, so I can't answer that. Um, but uh, it, 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 it grows into whatever it wants to grow into, I guess. Um, and then third is the, uh, in, what is it? What did I say? The, uh, oh, the, sorry. I, I said, um, I said, uh, intent, but intent and purpose are kind of similar enough. So we're just, that's the same answer. Um, significance or importance. Um, we talked about that at the very beginning with the whole, like, what is the significance of a, of an achievement, like a winning a, a world record or something? Um, what gives uh, life significance? Well, just look, this is easy. Just go look at anyone who's ever won an award. What do they win an award for? Oh, well, they won an award for achievement. But no, they didn't. The person won the award. The achievement didn't win the award. The person did. So what exactly are you giving the award for? You're not giving the award for, for the achievement itself. You're giving the award for the person who grew into the human being who achieved that goal. That's what the award means. That's what gives it significance. That's what gives the achievement significance. It's the growth into the person that, uh, that no one else could be. They're the only person who could do that. That makes it significance. So if you take those three main definitions, there are other ones, but those are the three main ones that I use that you can scientifically prove, that you can you, you look in the dictionary, and growth is at the heart of them. That's why growth is the meaning of life. But you do need all eight. You can't grow and hurt other people. You won't feel as much meaning. And you, you have to make your own choices. You can't like have someone spoon feed you your whole life and feel meaningful because if you're not, if you don't have your own sense of personal agency, you're not going to find meaning. So you need all eight, but growth is the uh, the, 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 the the central figure. Well, I think you're, what you've done is you've presented a really, um, a really strong framework for it all. Um, I, that was, I was thinking of that earlier in our conversation when you were describing what the book was and, and it just kind of went off as a light bulb. I was like, ah, he's got, the, it's a framework for growth. It's not, it, it's not the philosophy. It's not the way it's a framework. And what I love about frameworks is generally if they, if they hold up, it, it's because they work. And so I want to invite people to explore this book. No head up um, going into it that you have a, maybe the first 80 page chapter that you've read since you uh, left school. But um, <laughs> you apologized to me in an email and it turned out to be my favorite chapter of the book. So, um, but it's, it's so well written and uh, organized and, and just uh, it's one that's going to stay on my shelf too. When I need a reminder, okay, am I into, am I going down a path or a conversation or am I writing a piece that is, what am I doing here? Is this belief ethics? Where does it land? Cause, uh, yeah. cause it matters. Yeah. It and really I'll leave, uh, I'll leave your audience with this. Um, if you've been looking for answers, um, there are plenty of people out there, but if you want to understand how it all works and why some of the answers will work for you and some won't this is the book for you. It will teach you exactly how it'll teach you, teach you more than you ever wanted to know about evolution, <laughs> but it explains how life evolved as a means through which how humans today now drive meaning. And then it will explain systematically step-by-step step how you can apply the, these concepts in your own life 
uh, to create a meaningful life, uh, period. It's, uh, I, 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 forgive me for doing my own horn, but my, you mentioned why did I write this book? Um, uh, I, a lot of Greek philosophy talks about like the good life and what they really mean by that is the ethical life. And I'm like, but that's, you know, you don't just live to, 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 to follow ethics. I'm sorry, but you don't like, I, I, I learned that the hard way. I followed all the rules I was supposed to, and I didn't feel anything. Um, you know, I was like that. I had what I call perfect child syndrome. Because, uh, like I said, my my dad left when I was a kid, and so my mom worked really hard, and she seemed stressed all the time. So I I made it a, a rule never to upset her, ever. It's mm-hmm. like because she works really hard and she has a tough life. Uh, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure she has a perfect life. But that didn't mean I was all felt fulfilled and magically happy. Um, I didn't feel anything. I just feel like okay, well, what's the point of all this? I'm just I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, but I don't feel anything. So like ethics are not the point of life, and and that whole Greek philosophy uh, thing always drove me nuts. Um, you need all eight of these things. Uh, it, it's about uh, growing in the way that you want uh, in ways that you believe are going to make you happy. You'll you'll know you're right when you feel happy. Um, you'll do things the right way so you don't hurt anyone else in your journey because that'll detract from the meaning. You get help and you give help because that'll make mm. your growth better. And you make choices to uh, shape your own destiny. You do that, you will find meaning. It's guaranteed. It's as scientific as you will ever find. And then go find whatever philosophy works for you from there is fine. And maybe understand a little bit right going in why it's working for you. So you can even be more discerning in terms of what you're choosing. I think that's an, another um, application of a lot mm-hmm. of this, uh, a lot of this knowledge. And, yeah. uh, and, you know, you mentioned support and we didn't really get into it. I feel like we could do a whole other episode on that, but, uh, but know that uh, it, it, I've, I feel like that's an important thing for people to understand that support um, is an inherent and, and connecting with other people is an inherent piece of a meaningful life. And, right. you know, even in this, this time, which is temporary in the grand scheme of things that there is, you, you can do things very consciously to, to create and grow support if you don't have it. And, uh, and you, you address that very well too. Well, that's why I love these eight things because you can dissect anything that's going wrong or right in your life mm-hmm. down to these eight things and, and help to understand how to improve them. I mean, m- one of the bigger reasons why I wrote the book is because I didn't want people to fall into cults, right? They're looking for answers. The you know, cult says, oh, I have all the answers. And then they follow that. And then they leave the cult and go, oh, God, like my whole life is ruined, you know, that kind of thing. But y- y- the reason why I mentioned the cult specifically is because you mentioned support. And why do people get into cults? Because they feel alone, they feel uh, hopeless, they feel like no one likes them, and yada yada yada. And cults, the, the first thing they do is they go, "Oh, we love you. We 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 uh, ha- offer extreme acceptance. We accept you for who you are." And they're like, "Oh my God, it's the first time in my entire life where I feel like I can be myself." And then when the cult falls down, they go, "I don't know who I am anymore. I'm, you know, maybe they're suicidal or something." It's like, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. If you have these eight yeah. concepts and you understand how this works, you can go, "Okay, why did I like the cult? I like the cult because of the support." I felt supported. I felt like I could be myself, et cetera. And when it turned out that it was wrong and, and it didn't actually work for me or that person, maybe the call leader was like a, a secretly like, you know, hurting people, you know, that's that those, those documentaries yeah, showed uh, recently um, that, that it's like, okay, so I like the support. Um, I didn't like their ethics, right? Because <laughs> they were hurting people. So now you can dissect and go, okay, I need to find that support in a, in a healthy way. And I need to make sure I find it through people who are ethical and not um, you know, I don't, I don't fall into that and this will help you dissect that. And then you won't feel bad and you won't hate yourself for, uh, uh, uh you know, falling for it or whatever, because it, there is well, a reason what why you quote unquote fell for was actually yeah. was real, right? Like support yes, is real. It's a Beliefs real thing. Are real feelings are real. It wasn't. Yeah. Oh gosh. 
Nathaniel, we could, you know, we could it's dive real. in. Um, it is what the experience is real. I, in my, um, as you can imagine, having been called a cult member many times, um, I've done a little oh, bit I'm of sorry. research on, uh, that's not your fault. That's the media. Um, but uh, it's, it's a simplistic understanding of the situation that I was in. And, mm-hmm. um, and when, what, what always, what I have so much um, empathy for, especially when I watch um, documentaries about people who, who were in cults and I have a lot of common experience with, you know, when that falls apart and you attached so much meaning to what you were doing and what you were involved with, A, it's very hard to let go. And B, it, everything that you were feeling and everything that you experienced was actually coming from inside you. It wasn't actually the cult leader. It wasn't actually like it was an experience that created those, those optimal conditions for you to feel that good. Yeah. But yeah, but the, a cult is also a broken promise, right? It's not yeah. a, there's lots of organizations out there for any other measure could be deemed a cult, except for they haven't fallen apart and the leader hasn't been castigated for being um, disingenuous. Yeah. yeah, the leader gave you belief yes. in a positive outcome or the potential yeah. of a positive outcome. They gave you the support you needed to feel like you're belonging. You felt good as a result. You were doing what you wanted to do. And it has all the things. It's just the one problem is the ethics. And 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 and, and it's just when like I can't remember the name of the one, but I, I right now I'm thinking that Netflix documentary where that guy yeah, was a cult leader. Uh, I forget. That might be Nexium. it. Um, There's the so one many where the of guy them. guy was he was he was actually uh, raping his uh, followers. Yeah, um, that's Nexium. Yeah. I think it's called The Vow, the Netflix documentary. Yeah. But they're yeah. all, if you watch them, they're all the same. And even if you watch the documentary, I'm in Enlighten Us, it's it's the same. It's a leader who mm. who breaks a promise. Yeah. And that's, and I gotta be honest with you, like, look, I, I try not to be judgmental. That's the only problem with it. Like, that's it. That's it. It's just that they were doing unethical things. Because I don't think, it, like I said, I, I'm just as critical now of the, uh, of the skeptics uh, in this situation, because they're going to say, well, it's all fake. It's all stupid. And you shouldn't believe any of that fuddy-duddy nonsense. And it's like, well, wait a second. You know, if they're feeling fulfilled... And I feel good feeling and yeah, but look at the belief, yeah. like, and it's like, well, yeah, but you're feeling really good about yourself feeling like that yeah. over top of what I do. It's the same thing. Yeah. And who am I to tell you that you, that, that, that's something, some non-physical entity or whatever does or does not exist, or that this is the meaning of your life or not. I am not equipped to tell you that. Uh, I, I can tell you though, that um, if that, that group starts doing unethical things, that maybe you need to start to, to question. And yes, you can either, I, I don't know if I write this in the book. I, I, I might've wrote it, written a blog post, but uh, I said, there are only three things you can do if you don't agree with someone else's ethics. I, I think I write this in the book. Um, you could either change the group's ethics. You can leave and find another group. It's in there. <laughs> or, it's in there. Uh, or you could subvert it. <laughs> <laughs> so you, could, you could pretend <laughs> to follow it and then not. <laughs> yeah. So those are the, the only three things you could do. Um, so if you're in a, in a group that someone labels as a cult, um, and it's because they label it as a cult because of its, that there are some like scary ethics going on, well, you can change the ethics and then it's just a group, right? It's just, you know, it's not necessarily a cult per se. So like, uh, you know, I'm not one to judge either way, but I, I do want to help people who are in those situations where the only reason my, my only beef is that they take on someone else's meaning for it. Like someone gives them meaning. Like I, I'll yes. give an example. Um, it's from um, the outside. Absolutely. Yeah. 
someone someone asked me once on Quora. They said, uh, "Can uh, you know? Uh, can someone give you meaning or something like?" I forget what it was. Uh, and I said, "Yeah." Or, or oh no, how quick? No, they asked me, "How quickly can you give yourself a purpose?" And I thought that was a fascinating question. And my answer was Ooh. instantaneously. And they're like, "What do you mean by that?" And I was like, "Let me explain to you." Do you know what happens? Do you know what happens when people are experience trauma, right? They go into shock and they're sitting there in shock. What do professionals do? What's the first thing they do when they see someone in shock? They give them a purpose. The very first thing they do, they say, Hey, you know, focus on this. In fact, I was just, uh, I was talking about how I just found out I had vitamin D deficiency. I was just getting my blood drawn and, uh, you know, they're taking a, you know, taking a needle to me. I don't, I don't like needles too much. So I'm just sitting there like, yeah. and, and they're like, and, and what's, what is the first thing she did? She said, talk to me about your day or talk to me about your Thanksgiving. So she gave me a purpose. I mean, yeah, she's redirecting my attention elsewhere. You can argue that's a, a, a redirection or, or misdirection, but, um, and she gave me a purpose. So my purpose was not, I'm getting my, <laughs> my blood drawn. It's, Hey, I'm going to talk about my, my Thanksgiving. So that's what people do when they're, they're in shock. So you can instantaneously give someone a purpose because without a purpose, when you're in shock, your mind just dwells on, you know, ruminating on whatever just happened and you just keep processing and you go down the spiral. But if they give you a purpose real fast and then you do something, you can kind of get through it a little bit more easily. So um, I, it's very interesting. So I, 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 what, what a cult or a group or whatever would do is that they assign a purpose onto you. My only concern with it is if uh, you don't feel like that's your purpose, but you're adopting one just because you everyone else seems to be happy I, I, or everyone else seems to think it's the right thing for you. I just be careful with that because you should really do something that you believe in. I don't think you should do what you think other people want you to do because I, I feel like that's the wrong way to, to live your life. Um, I, I know from personal experience, cause that's what I did my entire first 20 some years. Um, the, the book is one of the first things I ever did, which was just, Hey, I'm going to write this. And if you don't like it, well, okay. That's as well. I wrote an page ethics chapter. What are you, what are you going to do? Uh, yeah, but, what are you gonna uh, do? not read um, it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You cannot read it. Um, that's what you can do, but, uh, but yeah, so I, I do care ca caution that, but if you do believe in it and you do believe it's your purpose and you're fine with it, I, I have no judgment on it. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot to to what you said thank you very much for yeah i think being able to go there and have that conversation in a non-judgmental manner is the most illuminating way to do it because we there's there the last thing that anyone needs who is on a journey that's either fulfilling or helping them to grow in some way or making them experience a sense of belonging or even to take it outside of the cult context um, back out into sort of the success success or contribution. The where it's coming from, like I think we all put on and try on things until we find what works for us and and being able to know where you're at in that in your in your journey and knowing that it could be up for review tomorrow when something presents itself that shows you different or makes you question in a deeper, bigger way. You think of how many people um, go through a change in thinking and believing if they were to find out in our next moment that they were ill. Everything yeah. that you, we've discussed with here would be up for question. Yeah. My thing is, how about let's not wait for that to happen or to experience deep loss before you question it? How about being questioning it and exercising awareness and discernment in your day-to-day -day life? And, mm -hmm. and that, I think, generates more prolific conversations and actions and meaning and, and ethical and behavior. Wow.
You, you just said two things were absolutely amazing. Um, number one is that idea you touched upon greater meaning. And uh, someone asked me once, that, that's the reason why I define meaning is because people say, oh, I don't mean what you said, like growth is the definition of life. I mean, greater meaning, greater purpose. Like, what is it all about? Like, what is a universe about? And I said, if you want to find greater meaning, what does it mean? Guess what? It means something very simple, meaning beyond yourself, something bigger than yourself. So if you want greater meeting or greater purpose, help other people or find something bigger than yourself to grow. That's it. It's, it's just so don't focus on your growth, focus on the growth of something bigger than you. And then there you go. You have greater meaning, whether it's God or whether it's uh, your congregation or whether it's uh, just uh, you're working with people with building a building or, uh, you know, you're trying to send a rocket to the moon or something, whatever it is. Uh, that's the greater purpose is that it's just beyond yeah. yourself. It's not just you. It's about other people too. Um, and the it's other thing inherently said, creative, right? Like it's inherently I, creative, yeah. which in itself is growth. It's, it's, yeah. expa- it's expansive Expanding. versus yeah. constricting and withholding and shrinking and, you know, heaven forbid, stagnating. Yeah. So greater meaning was one thing you said was amazing. Now I forget what the other thing was. Oh, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, you were no, telling me fault. I said something great and I interrupted you off track. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, what, what, what were you just saying? One was greater meaning. And then the other thing you said, um, oh man, I'm sorry. I mentioned I'm gonna... illness. I uh, maybe. Oh yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is, uh, to re rethink your purpose, uh, through like some major life transformation or something like, or, or some, uh, trauma or some, uh, major setback or whatever it is. Um, that's a really good point. Um, and, and it kind of ties back to your COVID point. Uh, so you can use times like this to figure out what it's really about, what you really want to do. And that, and I know it's cliche to say that, but it, it's a cliche for a reason. It's a cliche for a reason because, um, you often are so focused on kind of living and kind of going about day to day. You don't necessarily, I mentioned the marching off the cliff thing, right? You never notice when maybe that what you're doing isn't as fulfilling as it used to be, or maybe the situation, your friends that you have aren't exactly the ones you want to be associated with anymore, but you keep doing it because that's the, those of you have been your friends forever, whatever it is, like you may not realize that your values have changed, that your beliefs have changed that, or your beliefs should change or your ethics should change or whatever. And that maybe you need to make life changes. And it's only when those traumatic events happen that you actually feel free to do it. And I don't mean safe, I literally mean free um, in the sense that you might feel constrained. Like let's say you own a home, right? It's like, well, maybe I really, I've been doing this. This is actually a personal experience. So so I I live in Maryland right now. And I was like, well, I, I, I wouldn't mind a warmer climate, right? So now that I work remotely and I don't have to be here, it's like, well, yeah, maybe I should live in a warm climate. Um, but I have this house. So it's like, okay, well, I'd have to sell it first. Oh, that's a pain. So then you don't do it. <laughs> but if a hurricane came and blew my house down, I might go, hmm, maybe I should just go move somewhere else since there's no house to, uh, to, to hold me back. So that's an example of uh, how these traumatic situations that look terrible can actually be used. A lot of people, uh, let, let's let's take a religious example uh, lens on this. So God works in mysterious ways or the Lord works in mysterious ways. That's exactly what they mean by it. Or there's a reason for everything. Like to be even more secular about it, there's a reason for everything. Yeah, that's what that means. You can find meaning in trauma. You can find meaning in setbacks. You can find meaning in everything. Because the truth of the matter is, and, and I'm not a I'm not a big fan of uh, predeterminism or determinism at all. But uh, there's one thing they have right, which is uh, nothing can happen now with what ha- without what happened happened before what happened now happening. 
So, you know, I can't, I can't be here today if my mother didn't give birth to me and she couldn't be there and have me unless she got born. So like everything that happened before was necessary for something to happen now. I'm not a big fan of that because they, because they, uh, the conclusion that some people draw is therefore everything is predetermined and therefore there's yeah, not, very nothing matters. And that's, yeah. and that's so wrong, but, and we don't have time to go into that, but, uh, but just say that that's wrong. Uh, but uh, it is true in the sense that um, you can use things like, if you didn't have a setback, like if my father didn't leave in the middle of the night, would I have written that book? Ooh, <laughs> probably not. So can I really hate or hold anger or resentment or these negative emotions toward an event that might've been the greatest thing that ever happened to me when it comes to my own personal growth and achievement? And when you think of life that way, Oh my God, you might rethink everything in your life. And that's, sorry, that was, that was the second thing you said that was amazing. And, and so, so greater meaning and uh, using uh, uh, traumas and things to really bring out what really matters to you and, and what has changed. Those were amazing points. And I'm glad you brought them up. Well, thank you. And to me, in my mind, that's the conscious path, which is why, you know, which I hold a belief, I suppose, that that's why we're here. But uh, certainly why we're here together, which, uh, which I truly appreciate. Nathaniel. Thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun and so wide ranging, which shouldn't be surprising given the nature of the book. I will uh, leave links to your site and where you would like people to connect with you online in the show notes. And, uh, and I just, I want to express a big gratitude for you coming on and, and um, just sharing your thoughts so clearly and not being afraid to go there which is, which is awesome. Yeah. And thank you for being a great host. Thank, thank to all the listeners. Uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, and, uh, and thank you most importantly for turning a personal trauma in your life into something good, which is what we're doing here, which is this conversation. So uh, you're doing it the right way. That's all I can say. I appreciate that. Thanks so much for listening to free your inner guru. It's in reviewing episodes like this that remind me every single time why I love doing this as much as I do. If you've enjoyed this episode, I'd be so grateful if you would help other people like you find it by either sharing it directly with friends you think will enjoy it or sharing the podcast itself. And if you have a few moments to pop over to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and any of the other apps that accept ratings and review. I am. I have uh, an app that will send me the reviews from all over the world. So I do see and acknowledge every single one. So um, on that note, please make sure that you visit Nathaniel's website, check out the book, The Meaning of Life. And for now, I'm Laura Tucker signing off for Free Your Inner Guru.